Well, as I take a moment to get set up here, and we'll begin looking at our text in just a moment, the subject I'd like to speak upon this morning is entitled, The Necessity of Repentance. The Necessity of Repentance. I'm going to try to not be too long today, so we got to the preaching at a good early time. Hopefully, I'll be able to get it all in and get it out the way that the Lord would have me to do it. But the way that I think we're going to do the message this morning is we're going to begin with a lot of Scripture and have a Bible study where we trace what the Bible has to say about repentance and is it necessary for salvation, and we'll trace it through the book of Luke and then through the book of Acts. It doesn't have to be done that way. It's spread out throughout all of the Gospels, but for sake of being able to turn and stay in the same place, if we just look at the Gospel of Luke and look at the book of Acts, I believe we will be able to answer the question, is repentance necessary for salvation? What does the Word of God have to say about it? So the first part of the message is going to be a lot of Bible study, a lot of reading of Scripture, and then when we get to the end of considering is repentance necessary for salvation, we're going to talk a little bit more about the definition of repentance, and that part of the message will be a lot less of going verse by verse, and we'll be looking at sort of the controversy surrounding it, and how do we try to wrap our mind around what the Bible says, and then what is the best way to explain it and to define these terms. So this morning, we're going to consider the necessity of repentance and also the definition of repentance. For now, all I'll say in by way of definition, because it's kind of hard to spend all this time talking about repentance without at least defining a little bit what it means. The definition of the word repentance, as it is used in the Greek, means change of mind repentance, to think differently. It's used in the sense of repenting, of changing your mind, of having a change in the inner man, and by implication, it means reversal. So by implication, when it's used in the sense of reversal, it means to turn, to turn away from one thing and to turn from something else. Is repentance necessary for salvation. Let's begin our Bible study here in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, and verse number 27. Jesus says this. I'm in Luke 6. Now I'm in Luke 5. I mean, I was in the wrong place. If you're in Luke chapter 5, you're in the right place. Verse number 27. And after these things, he went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. Now, in these days, the publicans would be as hated as anyone in the society because they were tax collectors, if my understanding and remembrance is right, that were of the Roman government. It would be like if we were invaded by a foreign nation, subjugated to them, and then they appointed people to come take our money and collect taxes. And not only were they tax collectors, but they were infamous for being dishonest and cheating people out of even the way that the law would was supposed to be structured. They were looked down upon and they were hated by the Jews. But this man named Levi received the call of Jesus to follow him. And then verse 29 continues. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with them. Um, am I mixing that up? Is it that the publicans were Jews who worked with the Romans? So collaborator, collaborators, which would make it even worse. Rather than a foreigner, it was one of your own company men 
countrymen working with foreigners to rip you off and to cheat you on your taxes. Those would not be very popular people. Thank you. I'm glad that we got that clarification. Verse 30. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Oftentimes you will find the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews, their religious leaders, being pious and saying, This man receiveth sinners. They meant it as a put down of Christ, saying if Christ was really a good man, he wouldn't spend so much time eating and fellowshipping and speaking with and being around people who are known to be sinners and have a bad reputation in the community. Well, what they meant as an attack, we can take as a glorious truth. As the Apostle Paul said, Jesus Christ is coming to the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. If Jesus did not receive sinners, none of us would be able to be in his sight. For all of us are sinners. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And none of us are able to come into his presence and stand by merit of our own good works. And this is how Jesus answers this attack. Why are you spending time with people who are sinners? It's known that they have a bad reputation. Verse 31. And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Lord, help me now. Verse 32. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus wrapped up his mission and his ministry with this phrase. The purpose of why I am coming to the world is to go to sinners and to call them to repent, call them to turn from their unbelief, realize that they are lost in their sin and receive me as their Lord and Savior. This was the mission of Jesus Christ. It was to call sinners to repentance and call them to salvation. Let's turn now to Luke chapter 13 and verse number one. Luke 13, 1. There were present at that season some that told of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. These Galileans were trying to offer their sacrifices and Pilate had ordered that the soldiers would come in and would kill them while they were there at the altar. Thus the phrase, their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. It was a terrible thing that happened. Verse 2, And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffer such things? This was an attitude that was common in Jesus' day and sometimes will still be common in our day. And they'll say, Well, this terrible thing happened to this person. Therefore, they must have been a worse sinner than I am. It's exactly what they did in the book of Job. They said, Job, the only way that God would have allowed so many terrible things to happen to one person is if your sin is worse than our sin. It's seen most clearly in the story of the man that was born blind from his mother's womb. And they came to Jesus and they said, why was this man born blind? Because of his sin or the sin of his parents? They didn't even allow for the possibility that maybe just maybe in a sinful, broken world, bad things happen to people. And it's not because God is trying to punish them for their sin because their sin is worse than other people. The question didn't even make sense. Was he born blind because of his sin? Maybe they thought he was predestined to grow up and be a sinner and that's why God punished him or something. I don't know. How else could you even have someone who is born blind because of their sin? It doesn't make sense. But Jesus said not his sin or his parents' sin, but rather for the glory of God. 
God in His providence allowed this man to be born blind so that one day Jesus Christ could open his eyes and heal him and it would be a testimony to all the world that Jesus is God and He's doing miracles. But here's what Jesus said. Those Galileans who Pilate had slaughtered, in verse 3 he says, I tell you nay, it's not because their sin was worse than other people's sin, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. One more illustration he gives in verse 4. Or those 18 upon who the tower of Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He uses two examples. One was people being innocently shed, their blood being spilled by a sword. And the other one was a sort of a natural disaster where this tower failed, the structure of it failed, it collapsed and killed 18 people. And Jesus is saying it's not necessarily that their sin was so much worse than everybody else's sin, but he's saying sometimes God allows these types of natural disasters and occurrences to remind all of us, unless you repent of your sin and receive salvation, you're going to repair it, you're going to perish also. He doesn't use the phrase, I'm going to talk about that later, repent of your sin, but he says, except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Sometimes I believe we see a hurricane or we see a tsunami or some other natural disaster and our reaction could be, well, how could a just God allow this to happen? Or it could be we remember that all of us are going to die. If you live to be a 100 years old, you're still going to die because sin has taken a toll on this world and sin has brought death upon us and you're going to die one day. But sometimes God may allow someone to be taken in a disaster, a little bit what we would consider early, as a way to shake us up and make all of humanity remember one way or another you're going to die and you need to repent so that your soul does not perish for all of eternity. Now Luke chapter 15. As I said, there's a lot of verses that we're going through here at the beginning of the message as a Bible study. I hope that you'll stick with me. Luke chapter 15 and verse number 1. Here we see a repeat of the same type of event that happened with the publican that we just read about. Luke 15, 1. Then drew near unto him, unto Jesus, all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. It's also a truth that we note that oftentimes the people who are ready to receive Jesus Christ, the people who are ready to think about the eternal destination of their souls are the people who the world would look at and say they're sinners. They're in a rough situation. Because oftentimes when we view ourselves as righteous, when we think that we're doing just fine, when our bills are paid, when we're healthy, we're not ready to hear about God. Sometimes it takes a car accident. Sometimes it takes a sickness. Sometimes it takes something major to shake us up and make us consider this life is not all that there is within the heart and soul of every human being. I believe God has placed the desire to know the truth and has placed knowledge that this life is not all there is. There's something more and we're seeking it. And as the church, we have the answer and the task to try and share others with others around us the gospel. Sometimes it's so discouraging. Well, how could I go to people and try to tell them they're lost in their sins? They need to receive Jesus Christ. How can I convince them of that? It's not really our job to convince them of that 
or to be so good and persuasive that we talk them out of their sin, but rather to give the simple truth that Jesus died for our sins and we must receive Him as Savior and the Holy Spirit of God goes to work on their heart answering questions that they already have because they were born with those questions. Where did I come from? Where am I going? This life cannot be all that there is. But the same criticism. He's receiving the publicans and sinners. The reason he was spending so much time with them is they actually wanted to hear what he had to say. They were actually receiving him. But the, the religious leaders who knew the Old Testament law and who should have recognized in a heartbeat the Messiah is here, in their pride... They rejected him because they thought that they themselves were righteous. Verse 3, Jesus then tells them three parables. We'll just look at two of them that deal with this attitude they have of Jesus is spending time with sinners and looking down on that fact. Verse 3, And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it. And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Here the first illustration is of a good shepherd who loves his sheep and who cares for them. And over and over again in the Bible, Jesus himself is called the shepherd who cares for the church. And we are compared to sheep. Sheep can't take care of themselves. Sheep get lost easily. Sheep can be deceived. And they need the care of the shepherd. And that's the relationship of Christ and the church. But he says this good shepherd, he has 99 sheep that are safe. But there's one that got away and it's lost. And in his heart, all he can think about is that sheep was my responsibility. It's going to die. It's going to get eaten. I have to go. I have to find it. And his mind, it's not that he doesn't love or care about the 99, but his mind leaves the ones that are already safe. And he, he goes and he searches and braves the elements until he finds that one sheep and picks it up and takes it on his shoulders and walks home with it and rejoices. And therein is the picture of the heart of Jesus Christ. He wants the soul that is lost. He's waiting for that one person that has not yet said yes to Christ and he's willing to do whatever it takes to call them back. Okay, he tells that story. And then verse 7, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. And to make the same point, he tells the story next about a woman that had ten pieces of silver. In our day and age, ten pieces of silver would still have some value. But back then, ten pieces of silver would be really valuable. And she loses one. And she doesn't say, well, I've already got nine. I don't care about that $1,000 paycheck that I lost. I've already got nine. No, it's something she values, so she looks for it. She goes after it. And then when she finds it, she rejoices and she tells her friends and there's a celebration. Then he says again in verse 10, Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. We're not out to have a mega church. We want the church to grow if God would will. We want souls to get saved. But if we just keep going and keep plowing the good ground, and keep preaching the word, and keep sowing the seed, and we work, and we labor, and we toil. And no matter how long it takes, as we've already seen this year, if just one more person comes and says yes to Jesus Christ, it's worth it all. 
Because the angels of God in His presence, they throw a celebration, not over that a whole town or the whole world got saved, but one sinner, one lost lamb said, yes, Jesus, I want you. And if we will just continue until God gives us the souls He wants us to see come to Him, it's worth it all because God values the one Then he goes into one of the most famous stories in all the Bible, which is the story of the prodigal son and the one that rebelled and went away from God and then eventually came back. But the elder brother rejected him and was not happy that he rejoiced. And what he's telling the Pharisees is that they should not be like that older brother. They should rejoice when one comes back to God. So we've seen so far, Jesus said, I'm come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We've seen Jesus say, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And then here we see there's joy in the presence of God over one sinner that repents. Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. This is after Jesus has risen from the dead. And he sits down to eat with his disciples. And let's pick it up in verse number 44. Luke 24 and verse 44. And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Brother Andrew preached a great series called More About Jesus in Sunday School and used this as the text and talked about how in the Old Testament over and over again, the stories are there to point us to Jesus Christ. The Bible's not just a self-help manual that tells us how to get more out of our life or feel better about ourselves. The Bible points us to Jesus Christ. Verse 45, then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And as he looked at the books of the Pentateuch and of the law and the prophets and the Messianic Psalms, he said, this was written about me. Isaiah 53 was talking about me. Psalm 22 was talking about me. Psalm 2 prophesied about me. Verse 46, and said unto them, thus it is written and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So as he gets ready to give the Great Commission and sum up the reason for what he came, he said repentance and remission of sins should be preached to the whole world. And that's what they did in the book of Acts. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 2 and see just a few examples of the disciples preaching the salvation message and how they included this word and this idea of repenting. And as I said, I appreciate you sticking with me, especially the first part of this message. It's a lot of scripture and a lot of Bible study, but I pray that the Lord will use it to be a blessing to us. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. This is Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And without getting too far off track, we do not believe baptism is necessary for salvation. It's the first step of obedience after salvation. You'll see this one and then other places in the Great Commission where it says, repent and be baptized and you'll be saved. But then the very next verse says, and whoso repenteth not, they, or whoso believeth not, they shall be damned. 
So it separates baptism as being what is part of salvation. But what I believe Peter is preaching, if you look at all scriptures, because there's a plethora of scriptures that do not mention baptism when it comes to the matter of salvation, Peter is simply preaching it's God's will for you today to repent, get saved, get baptized, and go to heaven. That was all part of God's will, but we do not believe that baptism is necessary for salvation. But the first step was to repent. That's where you're turning to Christ by faith, asking him for salvation. Now Acts chapter 3 and verse 19. This is Peter preaching again at a different time. Acts 3, 19. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you. This is all Peter, including repentance in his message about getting saved. Now let's turn to Acts chapter 11 and verse number 18. Here in this chapter, we find Peter speaking of Cornelius and how God showed him through a vision that God was not just going to work through the Jews, but he wanted to give salvation to all the world. And this Gentile man named Cornelius, who was seeking God, God sent Peter to go to him, preach the gospel message, and he got saved. Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. Peter finishes telling them what happened. And then verse 18 says this. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Boy, I don't know if we have any Jewish people in the congregation this morning or not, but I know that all of us, Jew or Gentile, should rejoice over this verse, over this chapter, and over the fact that God has allowed salvation to come to all. Whoever repents, whoever turns to him, whoever receives him as their savior, you can get saved. It's open. It's not just to the Jews. It's not excluding the Jews. It's to all the world whosoever will. Now Acts chapter 17. We're getting close to being done with the Bible study part of the message now. Acts chapter 17 and verse number 21. Now we find the apostle Paul on his missionary journey. And he comes to Mars Hill to preach them the gospel. Acts 17, 21. The Bible says, For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. You are very religious, superstitious, ceremonial. That's what he's saying. For I passed, as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. The apostle Paul knew that his mission was to preach the gospel and to see people saved. And sometimes on Saturday, as he was a Jew and knew the law, he would go to the synagogue and wait patiently through a non-Christian service because he knew that at the end of the service, they had a custom where they would say, if any of the men would like to have something to say, then you can come up and say something now. And Paul would stand up and say, I'd like to say something. I'd like to talk about Isaiah 53. That messianic prophecy, it doesn't say he said that scripture, but it says he expounded Christ from the Old Testament. And he would point to the pictures of Christ and he would say, you know that Messiah that it was talking about that it says would come? He's already come and his name is Jesus Christ. And if you will repent and put your faith in him, you can be saved. 
He went there to tell them about Jesus. And here he goes in Athens to Mars Hill where these people are very sanctimonious and religious and superstitious. And they spent all their time debating and saying, well, what's some new thing we can hear that we've never heard before? And Paul said, I'll tell you something you haven't ever heard before. You have a plaque over here that's dedicated to the unknown God. He said, it's true there's a God, but I can tell you who he is so you know his name. And his name is Jesus and you can get saved. Paul was focused on the salvation of souls and he never went against what the Bible taught, but he did not come in with only one method saying, well, this is the way we've always done it. He went to the people in their culture where they were at on the certain setting and used whatever he could to his advantage to make a connection with them and to preach Jesus to them so that he could see them get saved. That was his heart. So he continues his message to them in verse 25. Verse 24, I'm sorry. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Glory to God. He is the one that we do not, he is the one we worship, not an idol, for he's not like an idol that we can see and touch, but he gives to all life. He's created all things. He's made of one blood, all nations of men. That verse there will help you if you have a problem with racism, by the way, because the Bible said all the nations came from one blood. We were all created in the image and likeness of God. We all trace back to Noah. We all trace back to Adam. We all are related to each other very distantly in one way or another, so we should not separate people into groups by their skin color or hate people based on the color of their skin, but realize we're all image bearers of God. Then when he says the bounds of their habitation, he's, he is talking there, I think, a little bit about nations and borders and sovereignly where you were born and where you live. And he says in verse 27 of all the nations that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. We're going to get into this a little bit here where in the Old Testament things were different than they are in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, things were seen in shadows and types that we now look back and see clearly spelled out in black and white in the New Testament. They looked for a Messiah to come. We look at the Messiah that has come. They looked at a, through, a little bit through a glass darkly, through passages that talked about the Messiah as Lord and as Reigner, but also that talked about Him as sacrifice. As Isaiah 53, upon His back shall be laid the sins of, his all, of us all, and with His stripes we are healed. But God was always able to be found. And God reveals himself in creation and begins within the heart of every person that has ever lived a basic desire that looks at creation and says, common sense tells me there must be a God who made this and I need to seek after that God. That's not enough to be saved. But I believe if we will begin earnestly seeking God through the natural witnesses that are given and how the Bible says that Jesus himself lighteth every man that cometh into the world, then we will come to the place where God will reveal himself to us if we will continue to seek the truth. Verse 27, 
that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after Him and find Him, though He be not far from every one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poet said, for we also are His offspring. Now he quotes an unsaved poet and says, yeah, even that guy made a good point, and then pointed them to the truth of what the Bible said. You see what he's doing? He's using every strategy he can to connect with people and point them to the truth. And the truth is that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Verse 29. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. Those idols that we make for ourselves, that's not God. And then verse number 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. All right, let's talk about verse number 30 now for just a moment. This is one of those verses that you probably could do a whole message on trying to consider exactly what does it mean and looking at different illustrations and examples. And there's probably some controversy and arguing among Bible commentators and preachers as to what exactly it means. Let me just give you a brief thought before I point you to the main point of the verse. It says these times of ignorance God winked at. That word, the, the word behind the phrase there, winked at, simply means to overlook. It says in sometimes, in some ways in the past, God overlooked people's ignorance to some degree. Now we'll note that ignorance and innocence are two different things. You cannot claim ignorance of the law as an excuse. And there were some people who may have been in some ignorance as to all the finer points of what the Bible says that were still not innocent before God, but God looked and realized to some degree they were ignorant. There's the concept in the New Testament about judgment coming for all who do not know the Lord, but judgment being more severe for those who sinned against greater light. Jesus said that some will be beaten with many stripes and some will be beaten with few stripes because some knew what they were supposed to do, but some didn't really know exactly, even though they sinned, they sinned a little bit more ignorantly. Thus, Jesus said, to whom much is given, to him shall much be required. Faith was still in the Old Testament. Salvation and damnation we're still in the Old Testament. And as I said before, what was in the Old Testament in shadows, we now see clearly. Here's, I'll, I'll read you a couple of verses from Acts chapter 14 and verse number 16. The Bible says this, who in times past, speaking of God, suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. So the Bible, I think this is the idea of God winking at or overlooking the sinfulness of different people and nations during different times. When it says he suffered, he allowed all the nations to walk 
in their own ways. But as he left them to their own devices and did not immediately come forth to strike them down and punish them, it says he still gave them a witness. He still gave them creation. He still gave them fruitfulness and food and good things that they could receive that would be a witness to their heart that there is a God that must be sought after. So God overlooking their sin or winking at these times of ignorance does not mean that no one was held accountable. It doesn't mean that you didn't have to have faith in the Messiah to receive salvation. It didn't mean that you would not be punished for sin, but rather many people think that that idea of overlooking means that God did not come forth to punish. He did not come take them out, but he allowed them to go their own way. He was patient and he, to at least some degree, considered the mitigating circumstances. All that to say the main point of the verse is he, he says in the past that happened, but now. Now there's a change. Now there's something different. Now God is very clearly and directly on an individual level to every person with no excuse. He commands all men everywhere to repent. You are commanded by God to acknowledge you are a sinner, to repent, to turn from trusting yourself and your works and to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. And anyone who does not obey that command is in disobedience to God and is in danger of hellfire damnation, eternal judgment from God. I met a man who, I don't know if I was friends with, but was friendly with and had some of these discussions with him. And he was very caught up and very into the idea of dispensations. Dispensations simply mean a different time in a way in which God dealt with people a little bit differently depending on the day and age they lived, the light that they had received, and God kind of based his requirements for them off of what time they lived. I think it's undeniable that there were different dispensations in the Bible, meaning just that there was different ways where in the Old Testament we don't yet know the name of Jesus. In the New Testament, we do. However, I believe the Bible very clearly teaches that no matter when you lived, no matter what dispensation, there is one way of eternal salvation, and that is faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 considers, what if there was no resurrection? What if Jesus had never risen from the dead? And in its defense of saying why the resurrection is so necessary for our entire faith, Paul said, if there be no resurrection, then they which are perished in the Lord in times past are lost. In other words, if Jesus hadn't risen from the dead, David cannot go to heaven. Moses cannot go to heaven. Abraham cannot go to heaven. It was said that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It says Abraham believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness. So when we consider different dispensations, faith in the Messiah was the only way to be saved, but it's just the fact that you could have lived in a dispensation where in order to follow what the Word of God says, you would have had to go do animal sacrifices and not eat certain meats and follow the dietary code and all those restrictions of the Old Testament. But now we live in a day and age where Paul said, we're no longer under the schoolmaster. That Old Testament law and the ceremonialness of it is passed away. We're not required by God to go shed the blood of an innocent lamb. But in the Old Testament, if you followed 
what it said and did the Old Testament sacrifices, that was just evidence that you were putting your faith in God. And it was your faith that was applied to your account and gave you righteousness in the eyes of God. In the New Testament, good works do not save us. They simply give evidence of the fact that we have been saved and that we have received Christ as our Savior. But my friend said, no, no, no. He said, you were saved a different way in every dispensation. In the Old Testament, you were saved by faith plus keeping the law. Then when John the Baptist came, you had to keep the law and have faith and get baptized. Then when Jesus came, you just had to have faith and get baptized and repent. But now Paul changed it again. And all we have to do is have faith to get saved, but we don't have to repent. But in the revelation time, then they're going to have to repent and get baptized again to get saved. Sort of this rolling, changing I do not believe that's true. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I'm, I'm just recently learning in, in recent days that uh, Peter Ruckman is a name that's out there and he taught that idea of hyper-dispensationalism and getting saved in a different time period in different ways. A hyper-dispensationalist will never say they're a hyper-dispensationalist. They just think they believe in a reasonable amount of dispensations. But that's what it is. It's exaggerating what the Bible says. Okay, here's my point. So but, but what the man continued to say all the time is he said, Under the Apostle Paul, we don't have to repent to get saved. We're only saved by faith. Repentance passed away. There's no need to repent to get saved. But it's the Apostle Paul, after Jesus went to heaven, who in Acts chapter 17 and verse number 30 said, God right now commands every man, everywhere to repent. Yes, the apostle Paul preached repentance also. I'm going to read you a few verses for time's sake. Paul said this in Acts 20 and 21, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith. That was what they were to preach. Paul said in Romans chapter 2 and verse number 4, the goodness of God leads us to repentance. You shouldn't have to even be scared by the fact of hellfire or damnation if you just have an understanding of how good God is to give His Son to die for us. That will lead you, lead you to want to repent and turn from yourself and what you were believing in before and say, Christ, I want you as my Savior. Peter said in 2 Peter 3 in verse number 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What is the will of God? It's that all men everywhere should repent. All right, there's a whole sermon's worth on the necessity of repentance, and now we're going to try to squeeze in at the end the definition of repentance. This has led to a great amount of controversy raging on for decades between different preachers, colleges, Bible authors, and commentaries on exactly what does it mean to repent when we come to Christ for salvation. I'm going to read you one more time the Greek word itself. This is the definition. A change of mind to think differently. Change in the inner man. By implication, reversal. By that we believe to turn, to reverse what we already were doing. And the controversy, many people believe that to repent, they basically describe it in a way that says if you repent, you stop sinning and you agree to stop sinning. And that's part of salvation. I'll just note 
for uh, interesting note and for, for brevity's sake, in Exodus chapter 32 and verse number 11, God got angry with the Israelites and he said, I'm going to punish you all right now for your sin. I'm going to kill you. And Moses went to God on behalf of the people as an intercessor. And he said, oh God, please have mercy on them. Don't start Israel over with me. Remember the promise that you made to them. Remember that the enemies are watching and they'll say, see, God led them out to the wilderness to die. God didn't keep their promises. And he prayed and asked that God, let me, let me get the exact phrase here. Moses prayed and said, turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. Verse 14 says, and the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. The word in the Hebrew is different than the word in the Greek, but the same idea is carried through, repenting. They said this word in the Hebrew has to do with a sigh, with remorse, with letting go. Sometimes it's used in the sense of comfort, but sometimes it's used in this sense, which is God said, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and kill them right now. But because he heard and answered the prayer of Moses, God said, all right, I'm going to change my mind. It didn't mean that God was sinning. It didn't mean that God repented of evil, but rather God changed his mind and turned from the fact that he was going to let judgment come upon them and he showed them mercy. So there's at least just one example in the Bible where the term repent doesn't have anything to do with sin. It simply means to turn away from what you were doing, from what you were going to do, from where you were at and turning to something else. I believe that much of the controversy around repentance has come as a backlash against what people would call easy believism. Now, I'm going to try, just give me a chance, depending on what you think, don't walk out yet, at least let me finish the message. But I understand why some people are offended because they look at the methods of some people in evangelism where they'll go to people and they'll do what some people criticize as one, two, three, repeat after me. They'll meet someone on a street corner in an elevator and maybe in 60 seconds they'll tell them, well, you know, Jesus died for your sin. Would you like to receive Jesus? Is this still making noise on me? Okay, I'm going to try one more adjustment. And I'll switch out microphones if it keeps being a problem. And they'll say, would you like to believe in Jesus? And the person says, sure. Okay, pray this prayer. And they repeat a prayer. And they say, all right, that person got saved. But they're not really taking careful time to explain to them the gospel. It's what some people criticize as easy believism. And I will just say, I understand that criticism. And I even have been around situations where there were people who had a whole group of 40 or 50 kids and they talked in front of 50 kids for just a couple of minutes and said, all right, let's pray. And they all bowed their head and prayed. And then they said, okay, we're done. And they said, 50 people got saved today. And I remember as a teenager being a little bit concerned not that we have to go through some elaborate scheme to get saved, not that we can't hear the gospel in a moment and get saved, but rather my concern, even as a teenager, I was thinking, I don't think that they all really got it. I don't think that they all really had enough careful explanation of the gospel. There wasn't any one-on-one -on -one witness taking time, making sure that they understood, but it seemed a little bit rushed. 
There's another preacher that's famous in the Houston area that has a mega church of thousands and thousands whose name is Joel Osteen. And you'll look at some of his services and rather than preaching the Bible very deep, he'll say, well, God wants you to have a lot of success and God wants you to be prosperous. And if you'll just follow the Bible, God wants to give you good things. And then sometimes without actually preaching sin, without actually preaching judgment, without actually preaching eternal hell, without actually preaching Jesus' vicarious death, He died in your place, without really preaching repentance and faith and fully explaining and expounding the gospel, He'll say, all right, let's all pray a prayer. And He includes one little line that says, Jesus, I want a relationship with you. And that's all that happens. And it's so shallow, and the gospel is not really being presented. We are not saved because we repeat a line. We are saved because we have a full understanding and grasp of the gospel itself, and we sincerely turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. But I believe that some people have gotten so offended over that shallow approach to the gospel that they have gone a little bit too far. There's a definition of salvation that's called lordship salvation. And I wouldn't even necessarily disagree with all of the points. If you look it up and read it, sometimes it's just defining things a little bit of a different way. But there's a phrase that says, well, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. In other words, if a person makes a profession of faith and they still have sin come into their life in any way at all, they didn't get saved because you have to repent of your sins to get saved. And they're showing that Jesus isn't really their Lord. And oftentimes I will disagree with such a harsh definition, especially being definitive, thinking that we can know for sure who is saved and who is not saved. The church at Corinth was in a mess, and Paul wrote an entire epistle in 1 Corinthians to say, knock it off, clean it up, there's sin, your, your church services are a mess, they're chaotic, you're disrespecting the Lord's Supper, there's fornication in the church, you're getting drunk, clean up your act and do right. And he says in 1 Corinthians, I believe, chapter 3, you're being carnal and I'm having to treat you as babes in Christ. He said those who are little babies cannot receive meat. They have to drink milk. And he said in like manner, and he said in different places later too to other churches, you should have been so mature as a Christian by now that you could teach this to other people. But I'm having to go all the way back to the beginning and give you the milk of the word. I can't move on to the meat because you're being carnal and you're being babes in Christ. He did not say you were not saved. He said you're a Christian, but you're acting like a little baby Christian who's refusing to grow up. So I do find in my study of the Bible the category of carnal Christian or Christian that is a babe in Christ that has some things in their life that are not right. And it's not that they're not saved. It's that the blessing of God is not upon their life. They're headed for chastisement because they're not following through in the process of sanctification like the Bible says that we should. We see Peter who confessed Christ as Lord, then we see him deny Jesus because he was afraid. Then we see him all over the place and making all kinds of mistakes. We see Noah who got drunk. We see Lot who had a bunch of problems, was in Sodom and Gomorrah, running from the Lord, lost all credibility, even with those in his family circle. But the New Testament calls Lot a just man, as we would say justified. He, I believe, was an Old Testament believer and follower of God, 
But he had a lot of things in his life that shouldn't have been there, and he refused to mature and grow up in the Lord as much as he should. We see the same thing with Moses. I believe that when we are saved, our sin nature does not automatically leave us. That's another doctrine that some people hold is get saved and then ask for a second blessing, and then your sin nature will be gone. You won't have to fight it anymore, and you can walk in sinless perfection. If it is true, I'm doing it wrong because that's not working for me. Paul said in Romans 7, when we get saved, he said, now I want to please the Lord, but now there are two laws warring in my members. The one that comes from God wants to please God, but also this body of flesh that I'm waiting to get rid of. Now we have new desires. Now we have evidences of salvation. We have a new direction. But at the same time, we're going to have to battle this flesh every single day because we can fall into the same sins that unsaved people do because we see that happening in the Bible. Boy, i got to keep moving. If I push time a little bit today, I'm going to try to keep it to only an extra five minutes than we normally do. Now visitors are worried about how long we normally preach. It's only about 12 o'clock. I'm going to do the best I can here. I believe that oftentimes, whether or not a person got saved and whether or not they truly repented comes down to these two words, comprehension and sincerity. Did you really understand the gospel in its fullness and its entirety? And if you understood it, did you really sincerely throw yourself upon the mercy of God? Did you not understand it? When you prayed, you didn't really understand. You were a sinner. You were lost. You were on your way to hell. Jesus died for your sins. You have to call upon Him and receive Him, not church membership, not baptism, not good works, and throw yourself upon the mercy of Christ to save you and to keep you saved. And if you did understand it, did you just repeat a prayer to get rid of someone so they would stop bothering you? Or in your heart, when you were convicted and smitten by the Holy Ghost, did you say, God, I'm lost. Would you please save me? Because that's all it takes. We can sit here all day and debating what does salvation mean. But uh, salvation is simple. And I want to wrap up with saying that in a moment. Years ago, I worked uh, at the post office in Plano, Texas. And this event happened that to the day still kind of surprises me that I think God just so happened to let me witness it unfold so that I would have it in my mind in future years of ministry and for topics such as this. There was two men walking, there were two men walking by who were talking about the gospel. They were talking about salvation. One was this big old strong burly black man with dreadlocks halfway down his back. And the other one was a guy that I in particular remember using a lot of filthy language all the time. But as they walked by talking about the gospel, they were talking about the clear gospel and what it takes to be saved. You say, were they saved for sure? I don't know because only God sees the heart. But I will say this, we are not saved because we fail, we don't cuss. We are not saved because of what we look like on the outside. We are saved if we have repented, turned and put our faith in Jesus. And they were talking and the one man said, yep, you gotta believe in Jesus to be saved. And another man was standing over here who overheard their conversation. And to this day, it kind of gives me chills because he heard what they were saying about the gospel. And he turned to them and he said, he, so the one man said, you have to believe to get saved. And the other man said, with a smirk on his face and a sarcastic tone, he said, Well, I believe. Am I good now? Now that I said that, does that, you know, make sure that I'm covered? Does that give me insurance policy? We are not saved 
because we simply say, well, I don't know if it's true or not. I don't believe it. But I'll just say one time, oh, I believe in a sarcastic way. We are saved if we genuinely, with sincerity, repent, turn to Christ and ask him for salvation and are saved by faith. There's the old thing called Pascal's waiver where he said, well, I've considered it, this philosopher said, and he said, if the atheist, if what they believe is true, then it doesn't matter if I'm saved or not. I've got nothing to lose. But if what the Christians say is true, then when I die, I'll be lost forever. So simply out of pragmatism, I'll just say I'm a Christian. Even that is not enough to save us if we are not genuine and sincere in allowing God to bring us to the place where He breaks us and we turn to Him for salvation, saying, I believe, am I good now? Lord, I want a relationship with you. That does not save us. It takes comprehension of the gospel and it takes sincerity. I do believe this. I do believe that when we are saved, there will be a change. There will be some evidence in some way if our conversion is genuine. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. There's a man who is called a pastor of a mega church. His name, and I believe in North Carolina, his name is Stephen Furtick. And recently he had a controversy because he was preaching about salvation. And listen to what he said. He said, following Jesus doesn't change you into something else. It reveals who you've been all along. What would it be like to see the you that God sees? That's like the literal opposite of what the Bible says salvation is. God does not empower us to see that we're already good. God convicts us to see that we're wicked and we turn to Him. And then we become a brand new creature that we weren't before. There should be some change. Much of the book of 1 John is where some of this teaching comes from about repentance and about lordship salvation. And he's writing throughout that book basically saying, if you claim to be a Christian, live like it, act like it. And he makes a couple statements in there where he that is born of God doth not continue in sin. And he who knows God doth not sin. And it's like, wait a minute, okay, none of us are saved if we ever sin? I guess I need to get saved. But the idea by the words itself and by the Greek underlying is this continuing, unrepentant, never any change. The same phrase is sometimes translated, makes sin, dwells in sin. It's the idea of being in sin without ever any change or evidence that we have been saved. And if we continue headlong into sin with no evidence, no conviction, no chastening, we're giving evidence we do not know God. Yes, First John says that we should not sin. But First John also says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He also says if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. First John says, Little children, these things have I written unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's like you tell your kids, I don't ever want you to do this. But if you do, come tell me. If you do, don't try to hide it. If you do, at least do the right thing. And here he's saying, I'm writing unto you that you sin not. But if you sin, remember Jesus is your advocate with the Father. Remember you can confess your sins and you can get right and keep walking on. We're not saved 
by good works. We don't do good works to be saved. We do good works because we are saved. Because we love the Lord and our good works show evidence that we have been saved. I believe that salvation is simple. We spoke on concert day about the thief on the cross and in simpleness and sincerity. He said, Lord, I'm a sinner. You're not a sinner. You're God. Will you remember me? He asked him, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And in that moment, a man that never joined a church, never got baptized, never had a chance to balance the scales by doing more good than bad, Jesus looked at him and said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. He was saved. How does the Bible describe salvation sometimes? So uh, I'm ahead of myself. I had that in just a moment. I do believe that evidence will be there, but sometimes that evidence is conviction and it is chastening. Two men could profess to be Christians and both of them head into horrible sin. And we could automatically say, well, neither one of them are saved. But perhaps over time, we'll see the one continues into horrible sin, never repents, never even is convicted or chastened by God. When you talk about evidences of salvation, you cannot leave out chastening. Chastening is God saying, you're headed the wrong direction. You're my child. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to whoop you. Because you're mine. And Hebrews said, if we sin with no chastening, we are an illegitimate child. We're not actually born again. We're not actually God's children. So the one may go into horrible sin and God may say, you know what? I'm going to wake you up. I'm going to let you get caught. Okay, I'm going to let you get a car accident. Okay, I'm going to let you get sick. And First John even says, there's a sin that's unto death. I believe it's saying not that there's some sin that's so bad it condemns us to hell and some not, but rather there's some sin that is so bad that if we are unrepentant in it, God will end our life early. That's what happened to them in Corinth by disrespecting the Lord's Supper. He said, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. Meaning many in the church died because God said, I'm not going to let you keep going in this kind of unrepentant sin because you're my child. So when you say someone can't be saved because they sin, give time for the conviction and chastening of God to sometimes be the evidence of salvation. And when you're in that sin, maybe you're not saved. Check out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Ask God, make sure you knew that you were saved. But maybe all you need to do is repent and turn and get the sin out of your life. And sometimes that shows us evidence that we are saved. I would not personally describe the gospel by saying there's two things you have to do to get saved. Or some people say three things you have to do to get saved. Some people say, number one, repent of your sins. Number two, believe in Jesus by faith. Some people even say, number three, continue to repent for the rest of your life. I do believe repentance is necessary for salvation. I'm not picking at you too much if you explain it different. But I, the best way I've heard it is this. I believe that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. They're two different descriptions of what is happening at one moment in time when we realize that we are lost. And remember it says to turn. We turn from our doubt. We turn from trusting in good works. We admit that we're a sinner. We acknowledge we have to have Jesus Christ. And we turn to Him and we say, Jesus, save me. And by grace we are saved through faith. And I believe it's all part of what happens at that one moment. I will say this. I look, uh, and I'm blowing the time out of the water this morning. I'm so sorry. I'm trying to wrap up here. You look up repentance in the Bible, you will not find the exact phrase, repent of your sins to be saved. We do acknowledge we're a sinner. We do repent. 
But some people say repent of your sins, meaning before you can get saved, you have to confess all your sins and agree to stop doing them. And then Jesus will be willing to save you. I do not believe that's what the Bible teaches. My dad, our pastor emeritus, has testified in the past. He said, I came at a young age as a teenager to get saved. He said, I didn't even know that half of the sins I were committing were sins. I didn't even know they were wrong. But we turn to Christ and throw ourselves upon His mercy. Then begins a process of sanctification where God convicts us of sin and we desire to walk in newness of life. And yes, it does show evidence of salvation if we start to walk away from those sins and if we continue headlong into them with no change, no conviction, no chastening, it can oftentimes be evidence that our profession was a false profession of faith because those were in the Bible also. Okay, the rich young ruler is brought up sometimes. They'll say, see, well, Jesus said you have to give all your money to the poor. He couldn't get saved just by faith, but a lot was going on in that story that I don't have time to preach. But he came to Jesus and said, good master, what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? He didn't even realize Jesus was the Messiah at that point. He was just calling him good master, not acknowledging him as God. And he said, what good thing can I do to earn salvation? Is there any good thing we can do that earns our way to heaven? There is not. So Jesus said, okay, what about the, the Ten Commandments? Have you kept those perfectly since you were a child? Yep, I sure have. Let me give you a spoiler alert. No, he hadn't. There is none righteous, no, not one. God gave seven billion people and people throughout the ages ten simple commandments. And it proves to us... No matter how self-righteous we think we are, if we've told a lie, we've broken the law of God. Jesus said, okay, you really think you're good enough to earn your way to heaven? And reading his mind, knowing what his hang-up was, he said, sell all that you have and come to me, and come follow me. And he was sorrowful. He went away. If the man would have been able to acknowledge he was a sinner, get over his pride, get over his riches, Christ could have brought him to the point where he could have told him, believe in me, repent, and you shall receive eternal life. And by the way, Jesus had the advantage of being a mind reader. Our command was preach the gospel to every creature. Tell them to get saved and let God work on their heart. I was recently at an event where one person was preaching and he said this, Salvation is not a one-time event. It is a lifelong process that makes us more like Jesus. It was not the event I was at with Brother Andrew, so don't accuse me of that, okay? You weren't at this one. Yes, sir. I was going to say it again anyway. He said salvation is not a one-time event. It is a lifelong process that makes us more like Jesus. I'm willing to extend people the benefit of the doubt and say that oftentimes people are kind of sorting believing what I am, but describing them differently. In this case, I'm going to flat out say that is an inaccurate description of salvation. Salvation happens in one moment of time because we're not saved by our works. We're not saved by being more like Jesus. We're saved because we call upon the name of the Lord. We turn to Him. He saves us in a moment. Then begins a lifelong process of sanctification whereby we should be more like Jesus. And if sanctification is absent from our life and we never become more like Him, it may show evidence we did not truly believe in Him, but that is not how we are saved. We are saved in a moment of time. I'm going to leave... Oh, okay. One guy preached this famous sermon at a youth conference. Had a lot of good things to say. My problem with it was he kind of angrily to me was castigating the whole crowd, saying, most of you aren't even saved. And maybe they weren't. 
But rather than a clear gospel message, he just kind of said, you're not really saved. And the evidences he gave of it, if you listen, he says, you listen to the same kind of music that unsaved people listen to. You watch the same kind of TV that unsaved people watch. Maybe they weren't saved. But are we saved because we listen only to Christian music? No. Are we saved only because we watch certain kind of TV programs? No, we're not. So to describe salvation as repenting for the rest of your life, I just don't personally like that description. Yes, you should have conviction for the rest of your life. You should respond to it. And if you don't, God will deal with you. One more. One person said this. He said, this is what repentance is. It's where you turn from sin perpetually. Repentance isn't what you do, it's what you don't do. You say, I'm a Christian now. I'm not going to lie, steal, fornicate, lust, hate people, murder them, commit adultery. I'm going to turn from all of those things that I know are offensive to God. It's a perpetual thing. Then he does say, it doesn't earn you everlasting life with God, but it's the way of salvation. As I said, I want to show grace. I want to not pick at people too much. I want to understand that a lot of times these people are saved and describing it a different way than I could. But he said that repentance is not something you do one can do one time and be saved. It's not an action you do. It's what you don't do. And he said when you go to become a Christian, you have to say, I'm becoming a Christian, so I'm never going to any list these sins because Christians don't do those Christians shouldn't do those things, but of all the things he said, the one word lust stood out to me. The one word lie stood out to me. If no one can be a Christian and lie or lust, then there's a lot of people who are not Christians. So I think we have to be careful by not mixing up and describing in such a way that we basically are pointing to works and saying you have to agree to stop sinning and you have to stop sinning and that's how you get saved. Rather, I believe we should acknowledge our sin is sin. We're saved in a moment of time. And if we did walk in those sins, we should see evidence of God dealing with us. I believe a great illustration of salvation and repentance and faith is you jump out of an airplane with a parachute. And you say, Lord, and you, as you would jump out and say, I trust in nothing but this parachute. So you say, Lord, I trust in nothing but your grace and your mercy. I can't earn my way to heaven. I trust in the blood. I trust you. And that, I believe, is a great example of how we were saved. I am convinced that many people will be in heaven that surprise us, and that many people will go to hell that will surprise us too. Because we look on the outside, but God sees the heart. And Jesus said there will be people who say, Lord, Lord, that will not be led into heaven. Two things. Just saying, Lord, Lord, doesn't automatically get you saved if you don't know the gospel, if you don't believe and don't repent. But also, these people stood before Christ and they said, Lord, Lord, in the name of Jesus, we prophesied, did many wonderful works and cast out devils in the name of Jesus. And Jesus will say, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. In other words, they did show evidence that they were saved. And it tricked a lot of people. But they did not receive Christ the way the Bible says to. 
And in likewise, Jesus said the Pharisees were whited sepulchers. They looked good on the outside, but inwardly were full of dead men's bones. And the same as some people may be able to be tricked and say, well, they're saved. They show evidence and they're not really saved. There were harlots. There were drunkards. There were publicans and thieves and terrible people who said, I believe I'm a sinner. I'm lost. Jesus is God. He died for my sins. God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm guilty. I repent. I turn to you. And I'm asking you to save my soul. And God says, that's enough. I will grant you eternal life. I will let you come to heaven. People got saved in this ministry in the past who who rode the church bus and came in way back a long time ago. And we had that ministry. And they make professions of faith. And sometimes they don't follow through by staying in church and showing the best evidence. But sometimes they get in trouble. Something rough happens in their life. And you know where they come next Sunday? They come back here. Because they remember where they met God. And they may not show the same evidence as you or I do. But if you were placed in that type of situation in the home that they came from, you don't know how much you would have grown either. We're not saved because we show enough evidence to other people. We're saved because we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we're saved by His grace. Let me end with these closing statements. I believe repentance is necessary for salvation. The word means to turn, to change our mind. I believe we are saved by simple faith, not by works or ceasing to sin. Salvation is a one-time event. Sanctification is a lifelong process that makes us like Jesus Christ. And we should show evidence of salvation. And I believe that salvation must include sincere repentance, not just repeating a prayer and hoping that that's enough. The Bible describes salvation as as many as received Him, they got saved. Whosoever believeth in Him, they got saved. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I believe repentance is a part of all of that because that's the only way that it's genuine. But never ever forget Jesus said if you want to enter the kingdom of God, you must become as a little child. Salvation is simple. We're not, a, ch- a child can't get saved as an exception because they have the intellect of an adult. An adult, no matter how good their intellect, gets saved because they have the faith of a child and believe so simply, I'm lost. I need Jesus to save me. And I implore you to do that today if you never had. Pastor tells us all the time, the illustration is given at the judgment of the nations where they all will come before the throne of God and he will separate the sheep from the goats. Only God can do that. Only God truly knows who's genuine. Only God truly knows who's repented. Only God truly knows who is saved. We simply give the gospel. And when someone shows evidence that they've received Christ and He's made a change in their life, we rejoice because that's what the angels do. And then we leave the rest up to God and trust Him with it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this simple salvation that you've gifted to all mankind. I pray if anyone is here today that does not know you as Savior, that they would call upon you and be saved.